Well, we're back, Red. It's a new year. It's new us. I don't know about new us. It's definitely not a new us. (laughs) In fact, if anything, it's more of an old us. (laughs) It's been a uh, heck of a 2021, and I'm excited for 2022. I've got a lot of plans this year, and uh, because of some recent events, I'm very focused. I know exactly what I want out of this year. Yeah. So, been a lot of stuff in the news that we're going to cover today, but we don't like to get started until... We got some drinks in us. That's right. (laughs) So uh, Red provided the drinks today. And uh, tell us a little history of what we got. All right. So we're going to start off with uh, Overholt straight rye whiskey. Now, Overholt is actually a pretty inexpensive rye whiskey, but it's also pretty widely recognized as a fairly good rye whiskey. Mm -hmm. So not going to start off with too much because we've got a little bit of a, a flavor journey today. So... It's not our typical make a drink and go. This is uh, there's going to be experimenting throughout. Yep, yep. I've I've got some stuff here, so uh, wanted to uh, give a little bit of a brief history of uh, rye whiskey. Rye whiskey is a uniquely American whiskey. Okay. So uh, I'm sure that there are some other places that have developed it by now, but it started off here in America, up in uh, Pennsylvania. Okay. So you had the Irish and the Scots that brought over the practice of distilling uh, grains into whiskey. And then you had the Dutch who had the practice of growing rye. So they both kind of uh, combined there in uh, Pennsylvania and the the plentiful nature of this nation allowed for uh, quite an excess of rye grain. So they, uh, the Irish and the Scots wound up buying it up from the Dutch and distilling it into a new whiskey. I imagine that was quite the journey because <clears throat> your rise are, you know, that, that's a unique thing to try to distill. That's a unique thing to try to extract flavor from and balance it in a way that actually makes a good drink. I well, mean, all, all whiskeys are done from grains. Mm-hmm. So uh, bourbon is predominantly from corn. Uh, rye is obviously rye. Uh, then you've got uh Various various other grains that are used in the production of whiskey, uh, very commonly wheat. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scots like to use barley, and uh, they malt that barley and uh, turn that into scotch, and it's wonderful. But uh, yeah, so this is rye. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very similar to the, the smell is very similar to, a, you know, just a standard whiskey. There's not too much deviation from that classic, almost, almost bourbon-y smell. So... Bourbon is also an American whiskey, developed more in Kentucky. Um, but bourbon is, like I said, it's made from it. I think the stipulation is that it's asked to be 51% corn at least. Okay. All right. Um, but then, of course, there are other stipulations that are put on bourbon specifically. Uh, I actually think that they repealed the uh, the territory uh, aspect of it that it doesn't have to be made in the specific like bourbon county of right. kentucky <laughs> with uh river from water from that certain river or creek or whatever it is mm-hmm. uh, i think that's it's more about the the process now uh if i remember correctly mm-hmm. but rye was actually for a long time a lot more popular than bourbon your voice is doing something right now that i was literally about to comment on about the feel like the the taste of it yeah there's definitely something beyond what whiskey does there's uh i don't know if it's more oils or you know something there's something that it gives a coating not in a bad way but it just it it's um it causes i don't know i don't know how to explain that no i understand um I don't know how to explain it either. I'm unfortunately I'm not as well versed. <laughs> we we got to get better at this. Yeah, we do. Well, let's see. But, we got something next month. We might get better at this. Yeah, quite possibly. But uh, so, yeah, for a long time, rye was rye was king. Mm-hmm. Like you know, bourbon became pretty big down south, but even down south, uh, rye was was fairly popular. Um, it was very smooth, like compared to a bourbon. A bourbon has a little bit more bite to it, but this is super, super smooth. Yeah, actually. So, do you know what George Washington did after he left the White House? Hmm. He went back to uh, he went back to his plantation there at uh, Mount Vernon, and he started making rye whiskey. 
<laughs> that was his hobby after dealing no, with politics. That was, huh? that was actually his me- method of income. So you know, we didn't you didn't have this, you know, for, you're forever paid by the government after Career politicians, being, right? Yeah. After being a public servant like you do now. No, when when George Washington left the White House, he went back to work. Thomas Jefferson was in severe debt by the time he died, and he had been the president. So you don't have. It actually wasn't until more modern presidents that they even became super wealthy after being in the presidency, going and doing speaking engagements, writing books, things of that nature. But yeah, so George Washington made rye whiskey. Now, the rye that you would have had back then was not like what it is now. It wasn't aged. Okay. So there's an aging process they typically go through now. Yes. Okay. Yes. Most whiskeys go through an aging process in a charred oak barrel. Um, But uh, a lot of, especially with the rye, the actual aging in the oak was more due to transportation. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of now the process of using charred oak barrels for uh, aging had been very prevalent in other parts of Europe, mostly with, with other types of alcohol, Uh, sherry. uh, I think there were some like brandy and some other things like that. Um, But they started to notice the transportation of these whiskeys and barrels, and they started Mm -hmm. to get some better flavor profiles than what they had just sitting in the, uh, fresh from the still. Right. And then they started, I don't know. I've, I don't know exactly how the process went. I'm assuming that they talked to somebody maybe who knew a bit about the uh, aging process of some of the other, uh, like the sherry and the brandies and other fortified wines, things like that. And so they thought, Hey, this might be good for the whiskey and started doing that with that too. So anyway, that's what led to a whole bunch better whiskeys, but prohibition era, unfortunately, uh, saw the decline of rye whiskey. Because rye was more difficult to make than bourbon. I was wondering if, if the actual process might be significantly different than a bourbon or straight so whiskey. I don't know much. All I know is I, I I did a I did a brief reading into it, but apparently so the the production of, of rye was a little bit more involved uh, than bourbon. And so once prohibition happened and the Pennsylvanians stopped making rye whiskey, um, and there were other people too, but I know it was predominant. It was very, very popular in Pennsylvania. Um, really the only places that you could get rye were cheap Canadian imitations Yeah, and they were awful. And that kind of is where the idea of rye being like cheap swill whiskey okay. came from. It's because Canadians brought substandard whiskey and then Hollywood went off with it saying that basically rye was only, only drank by drunkards and, you know, low class individuals. So they, they perpetuated they stipulated, that uh, Yeah, <laughs> they got a stereotype around it. Right, and it had a bit of a resurgence in uh, in the later 1900s. Uh, definitely a lot more of a resurgence now. In fact, there are a lot of whiskeys. Um, so they call it a rye-backed bourbon. Okay. So what they'll do is they're mixing rye and bourbons together in order to make, they make a blended whiskey, but it it blends the two flavor profiles together really nicely. <laughs> And then there's actually um, a, a new style of whiskey out, which is called a Kansas City whiskey, originated in Kansas City. No, so it's okay. actually, yeah, no. Funnily <laughs> enough, um, no, that's hard. No, to the put big that distinction. Together. The big, the big distinction. And I, I, I want to give some respect to Midwesterners. They'll tell you there's a difference between Kansas City. There's a Kansas City, Missouri, and a Kansas City, Kansas, and they're very serious about that. Yeah. Well. So okay. is this a Kansas City, Missouri, or is this a Kansas City, Kansas? <laughs> so here's the thing. So Kansas City, the city, actually predates even the territory of Kansas Yeah, by more than a decade. And it was the uh, city on the water next to the Kansas River. So the uh, they, they built the, the town of Kansas. Actually, it was just called Kansas at the time. And it became the town of Kansas after the territory of Kansas was established and then became the city of Kansas. Uh, later on, it became an outpost where uh, the Santa Fe Trail, um, Oregon. the Oregon Trail, the California Trails all branched off from Kansas City. It was kind of the last, you know, civilized settlement. The last outpost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, then, uh, you know, it just kind of grew, but there, you know, there were people that were living over on the other side of the river that were over in the Kansas territory that even once Kansas became a state, they still, you know, had a little bit of loyalty to the name of Kansas city. You know, what's weird to me about that whole thing is St. Louis is known as the gateway to the West. 
Yeah. And yet I, th- I feel like Kansas City kind of was actually like, oh, here's your last stop. Yeah. So it would almost feel like more of a gateway. Now, I understand why is because the Mississippi River in St. Louis was the major hub of transportation of goods. Well, and the Mississippi the River Midwest. was the border for the longest time. Right. And then it, even then, like it, even once it was no longer the national border, it was kind of the border to the unknown. Right. So once we'd gotten the, the uh, Louisiana Purchase. So, I mean, Kansas, uh, St. Louis was like a settlement built there that really was a place for people to branch off into the unknown territory. Uh, Missouri became a state and uh, people, and they, they, I can't remember when Missouri became a state, but anyway, the point is that people built uh, the town of Kansas, became mm-hmm. Kansas City, and uh, Kansas City is actually uh, bigger than St. Louis. Now, as usual, I like to just try to get information quickly. So as you were talking there for a second, I was like, oh, the 24th state, the state of Missouri, August 10th, 1821. So funny enough, because of some other background knowledge I have, that's a very similar timeline to a particular church. <laughs> well, can we call it a church? Uh, but yeah, a particular church around the same time that sure. it was um, introduced yeah. You know, so that's funny. I'll remember it now because I remember a lot of those dates. So 1821, well, maybe you can push those dates out and start pushing these dates in. <laughs> right. No, but uh, anyway, so, uh, but the Kansas city whiskey is actually, they add a little bit of sherry to it. So okay. Kansas city whiskey is actually a, a bourbon backed rye that they add a little bit of sherry to. Um, and that was actually a process that predates prohibition was adding sherry a little bit to the whiskey to kind of like round out the flavor profile. Now there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of whiskeys nowadays that are aged in sherry casks Mm -hmm. uh, and that they do that to help round out the flavor profile. The adding of sherry was kind of a a cheap and easy way of, of doing a little bit of that definitely uh, took less time than adding it in the sherry cask. We just dump a little bit in there. It's going to be the same. Yeah. But the process really kind of died out with prohibition and there are, there are a lot of prop uh, processes and practices of, uh, of, I mean, all, all surrounding alcohol, cocktails, uh, distilling, brewing, all of that, that kind of fell away with prohibition. And fortunately, uh, a lot of uh, literature has survived on it and people have gone back more in recent years and uh, and found some of that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's probably a bunch that, that was lost. I mean, the, the Bureau of Prohibition destroyed a lot of literature as well as destroying alcohol. Yeah. So, well, some things are, you know, traditional, right? Where they're going to be passed down through generations, word of mouth, that sort of thing. So thank goodness for oral traditions and stuff like that, to, you know, but hey, that's why it's a big deal when like, you know, the, the Library of Alexandria burns down, you lose a lot of history. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I had to fact check myself and I'm so off. This is great. Like this is one of the embarrassing ones. Ready? So this makes a little bit more sense when you think about like area wise, where would you need to have you know, what would be a good place to have big cities? Yeah. Alaska. Apparently, Alaska, Sitka is the largest, 2,800 square miles. Wow. Juneau, <laughs> 2,700. Wrangell, which I, I had never even heard of Wrangell, but 2,500 square miles. Anchorage, 1,700. And then we just go, blah, 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 blah. So bigger cities that are notable, Jacksonville, Florida, is like the biggest of the populated cities. Houston. As, as we're, and we're talking about land mass. Land area. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Jacksonville's like the highest of the of the really settled areas. Houston, Oklahoma City, Phoenix, San Antonio, Nashville, Los Angeles, <laughs> Indianapolis, Fort Worth, Dallas, San Diego, Chesapeake, Louisville, Austin, and 25th, Kansas City. Okay. <laughs> so I was off. Yeah. I knew it was big, which it is. It's it's in the 314 square miles of, yeah, that's, that's a significantly large city. Yeah. So, and well, it I spans remember. a couple counties and it's, it's large. Yeah. Well, I mean, it kind of spans two states. Yeah. <laughs> well, the metro for, for sure does. Yeah. Well, the metro's got, I mean, most metros have a whole bunch of other little cities and towns and stuff like that that are kind of border them that are, are not really part of the city, but for all in, for, for functional purposes, they're part of the city. Mm-hmm. All right. So anyway, this, so that was the rye. Okay. And then now we're going to try something else. This is very interesting. A lot of people don't really know about this. It's called Mezcal. Now, uh, what's funny that people don't know about this. So Mezcal and tequila are kind of brothers. 
in the same way as, you know, rye and bourbon are brothers. Actually, it'd be more similar to saying rye and whiskey mm-hmm. because all tequilas are mezcal. Okay, Wait, but did I say I said whiskeys or something? What did I say? Yeah, right? you said whiskeys for a okay. second, but the, no, all tequilas. tequilas. So rye or so tequila and mezcal are are kind of are related in the same way as rye and whiskey are related. Okay. All tequilas are mezcals, but not all mezcals are tequila. <laughs> so, yeah, got it. So, um, both made from an agave plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, tequila is typically made from a specific agave plant and in a specific reason, region. Mezcal is kind of the whole overarching thing. You're using an agave plant. Um, I think tequila might actually use the leaves of the, de- of the agave plant, whereas... Uh, from what I understand, tequila, it uses the that root ball that almost looks like a pineapple yeah it uses that they smoke it they cook it down smoke it break it into pieces send it through a shredder so that's what they do with the mezcal too okay so um yeah so it's i have and that's that's why i said i i thought so Mm -hmm. (laughs) wrong but uh yeah, so it's it's the the heart of the plant that you know you cut off all the leaves and you got the center part of it. You're right; it lo- does look kind of like a pineapple. Yeah. Um. And then yeah, they put it into a, a fire pit. And yeah. Then they they burn it. Now, one of the things that they do with mezcal is they completely cover it. Mm-hmm. So when as they're it's burning, that smoke winds up, um, like seeping into the. I think uh, that's similar hearts. to what I've seen that they've done with you know tequila well but tequila but, doesn't really have the smoky flavor that you get with mezcal so well they don't to, they don't char it right like when i've seen videos of it and stuff the the outside of the plant that they're going to break up and, and use for it still has a lot of color to it still has a lot of the white you know off-white color but you can definitely tell that like there's areas of it that have been cooked very well but that's probably another part of when they're each different company wants a different flavor profile, they're going to cook longer, slower, you know, whatever, you know, differences they make. I, and I think there might be some burying stuff that happens with, you know, the tequilas too. Well, so the process sounds super similar. Well, part of the reason why Mezcal has the smoky flavor that it does is because it absorbs that smoke while it's down there buried in that fire pit. Now, another reason why it gets the flavor profile it does is because they, it, those plants themselves have to reach about 25 years to be mature enough that oh, they'll wow. turn it into mezcal. Okay. That's significant. Yeah. So it, it gets a whole lot of, uh, f- of mineral flavor profile to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's got that very smoky flavor. It's very complex in, in similar way to whiskey. Um, they, the rumor or ancient wives tale, whatever you want to want to call it is the, the legend is that, uh, they started, they started cooking the, uh, the, the plants when one of them got struck by lightning. And so oh. they tried, they <laughs> it tried was an the, accidental uh, cook of the, uh, agave. Yeah. So somebody came along and found one of them that had been struck by lightning and they smelled it and smelled good and they drank it. And, uh, just they, figured, hey, they, let's try to distill in this. Well, and so that was so that again, part of the, the legend is that the uh the native Mexicans Aztecs. did not I don't know whether it was Aztecs or Mayans or or you know, whatever sort mm-hmm. of culture civilization was there at the time, that they didn't distill it. That maybe they um they they might have brewed it. Mm-hmm. To, to allow or fermented it is what I meant to say, uh, but that they didn't distill it and that it was actually distilled when the Spanish came over. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Again, it's the legend. I love conjecture, so I'm fine with this. <laughs> we come up with our own story. Yeah, but I, I like to at least say that it's conjecture. Right. <laughs> so so this is a very different smell. Holy s- smoke. Right. Holy smoke. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It smells like brake cleaner. Really? Oh, <laughs> you no. want me to go get I, brake cleaner? No, I I smell. I've <laughs> so I had some I had some messed up brakes uh, for a long time. That is straight brake cleaner. When I was younger, and <laughs> I I know what brake cleaner smells like. I don't agree with you, but uh, we, we are going to put this to the test. Maybe you've got the Rona. Maybe no. you're not able to smell properly. <laughs> no, my sense of taste has not changed. Well, why don't you taste it then? Holy, like on the nose, that is brake cleaner. <laughs> dude i'm serious <laughs> oh we're gonna get we're gonna get t-rex to weigh in on this issue before uh before she leaves today okay because i'm, I'm like and i've got a can i got like 20 cans of brake cleaner downstairs and I'm, I'm very tempted to do it but no i'm not trying to make fun of the alcohol but dude, why, don't, why don't you taste it okay tell okay. me what you think there 
to be honest. Be honest, by all means. I I think it's a mental barrier I've got at the moment. Okay. It tastes like what it smells like. So <laughs> let's try this. Okay. I'm going to add a little bit of the rye mm-hmm. to the mezcal. Okay. And tell me what you think of that. <laughs> I find this thoroughly entertaining. I was not expecting that smell. That's okay. Yeah, those definitely complement each other. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Woo. Absolutely. I love the way those two go together. That that definitely changes the profile. The smell is completely different too. Yeah. The brake clean's gone. Good. <laughs> but I like how it blends that that smoky and earthy uh flavor to, you know, the more more grainy, woody kind of notes of that I get from the rye. Mm-hmm. So, and a little bit of fruity notes that I get there. So I really, I really like that. I, uh, I've had, uh, I was introduced to Mezcal through a cocktail that was blending in together whiskey and Mezcal. Um, I've had it by itself since then. And I've found a lot of mixtures. I've had a few people make some very creative mixtures, uh, since then. Uh, one of them included chartreuse, which if you're, I don't know if you're familiar with chartreuse. Yeah. But just in case the listeners aren't, so chartreuse is actually a an alcohol that is distilled from herbs. So I think it's a hundred and thirty something different herbs that they that they mix into it, and it's made by monks. And at any given time, there are only three people who know the secret recipe of making Jeez. chartreuse. Yep. <laughs> so and they're all monks of this order. Okay. So, um, but anyway, so there's two. Uh, the chartreuse is is very interesting. It really it's very savory in flavor. You really taste the herbs. Um, it's it's very unique. Uh, I wound up having it on a bar crawl down in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Charleston. many years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I actually saw this really cool video the other day, and it, it's definitely worth looking up sometime and, and watching. I wouldn't do it here on the podcast, but this guy goes through and brings on several different um, ethnic ethnic uh, historians of sorts. But he's a language expert himself, and so he basically he's a white guy, so he does all the you know New England Midwest and Western accents and does them scarily well and then can also you know he's describing exactly how each one breaks down where it comes from the type of people that settled the area that caused that um and then you know he brings in native americans uh you know the the they call it latinx now but basically no, anything no nobody that's the what they call the themselves left. no the, this lady not- i'm saying this lady called herself a latinx expert. okay i'm not saying that that's what it is <laughs> but because it's basically over anything. the overwhelming majority Mm-hmm. of Hispanics hate the term Latinx. They don't use it and they actually find it slightly offensive. Yeah. So, and then also brought in, uh, there's some really unique dialogues that came from the blend of, you know, African-Americans from not just slavery, but over time, there's been a lot of carve outs that, you know, pull from local culture, blend it with, you know, a native language. And, and it's what's, you know, kind of been at the forefront of shaping the English language in the United States in a lot of ways. Very interesting. Well, it's really interesting. Like I found it really fascinating when I went back in history and looked at the changes in the English language after the Norman Conquest. So, if anyone's ever had a French class, you'll notice that there are certain things in French that very closely resemble words in English. Words like fiance or beef, poultry. Um, there, there are a bunch of them rendezvous. Those, those are all French words uh, that were brought over and incorporated into the English language. Now, what's kind of interesting to me, like, so I brought up beef and poultry, mm-hmm. that those are words that we use to describe food and the French have to describe the animal. <laughs> okay. So it kind of became the, just the practice that, you know, you would, I, I think there was kind of like a high English and a low English English at the time. And it just kind of uh, blended together. So you had the people who would actually be like the high class would use the French term, but most of the time when they're referring to it, they're referring to it as a meal because they weren't out there 
dealing with the cattle right. or the chickens or anything else. They were, they were eating the food that made of it. And, you know, the farmers would be then using the standard English, using our words, cow, chicken, duck, whatever. And so it kind of became as the people who kind of straddled it kind of, and the, the English that wound up taking over just referred to, Oh, well, yes. When it's walking around, it's chicken. You know, when it's, you know, on your plate, it's poultry. Well, it, <clears throat> I can tell that that's lingered on in our culture of calling things what they were. <laughs> Definitely. But, and I can kind of see that too. If you look at just anytime you're in Europe, the names for things are very unique. And it's because of what it, they're talking about. It's kind of like looking at a piece of art, right? Here in the United States, we kind of say, oh, look at all those colors. I see blue and gray and green and purple. And, you know, and you're identifying a color, you're identifying the material being used. And in Europe, they're like, I f what does this make me feel? And how would I describe that feeling or what's what's the resultant of the blend of it? You know what I mean? So it's it's very Americana, I guess you could say, to do what we do. <laughs> well, you brought up colors. Mm -hmm. Did you actually know? Did you know that actually for a long time, blue didn't have a, a name associated with it? No. So if you look, if you ever go no, back no, and red did, well, <laughs> red was actually one of the earliest. So I, I, I watched this documentary and it was talking about uh, the names of colors and you can go back and the, the further back you look at it, the more colors disappear in descriptions. Really? So red is actually, besides it's black and white, mm -hmm. red is actually the first color that's mentioned in most cultures. Right. So, and then I think after red, it goes to green well, if you and think then, about it, red is very significant just from the human standpoint. Because, right, blood. Right. When we die or when you somebody's hurt or injured, blood is, and that's why there's a lot of tradition around blood too in a lot of different cultures, um, just because it's the one thing that identifies what's inside of us. And that's very critical for human history. Well, and you'd think about, so crops, green, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of farming and stuff. The, the vast major, majority of human history has been revolved around farming. So... But if you look at like the Odyssey or the Iliad mm -hmm. and look at their descriptions of water, they say things like dark wine color. They don't say blue. Weird. Yeah. So there's, there's actually, there's a, a bunch of other examples of it where blue is not actually used as a description of a term. I think there've been a couple of cultures that had it earlier than others. If I'm remembering correctly, ancient Egypt had blue as as a descriptor before uh, a lot of other nations, uh, I might be confusing that, but, um, but yeah, so blue will end up being named a lot later in the vast majority of cultures. Uh, and I think about it, there was actually a study that was done as far as being able to identify different shades. And so, you know, we have, we have different names for different shades of colors. So like with red, we have crimson and we have scarlet and, you know, we have, uh, it almost makes you wonder, other. like, it, did the language have to wait for understanding how the colors actually, like, what were the primary colors and how they were blending? I don't know. I think about, I mean, you think about culture and how it evolves. Like, you know, we, we talked about um, hunting and, or not hunting, but we talked about farming. And, you know, there was hunting and gathering, you know, before that. And you really think about when, like, think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Mm -hmm. You know, when those needs are, when those lower needs are met, then you're able to pursue higher and higher needs. So as cultures have had more and more of their needs met, you know, we've, we've got equipment and you had the industrial revolution and that was able to take people away from being majority farmers mm -hmm. and being more into the industry. And then we were able to use machines and stuff just to supplement that lack of manual labor in the farm. So we didn't need as many people to be farmers. Right. So, and then think about the way that that technology has advanced. We don't need as many people to, you know, work in factories. We've got machines and robots and stuff like that that can do a lot of those those workforce. So we wound up venturing off into computers and we're working more into computers now. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, you can go out into any group and, you know, grab a handful of change and throw it in the crowd and you're going to hit somebody that works with computers mm -hmm. that works in tech yeah. of some sort. So it's in fact, probably the majority of them are going to work in some form of, of tech or at least work with it. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, as, as cultures advance, you know, when you've got, You've got a, a city that is able to come together. And so you're able to have some people be farmers and some people be merchants and some people be, uh, be soldiers. And then you've got artisans, you know, people that are able to, to make things and they've 
everybody else is in a place where they're enough of their needs are met that they can spend their their resources on artwork or entertainment things of that nature so then as people are able to then people are able to use that as a job so it's no longer a hobby that oh i, I paint i can now bring income I, I in could bring income in by by painting or by sculpting or by acting whatever uh writing so as these things become as you're able to develop spend more time into them you know you see the increase in skill level mm-hmm. i mean look at the artwork of the ancient egyptians versus you know the artwork of the romans you know look at i mean you there there was some good artwork of the ancient egyptians you can look at some of the sculptures and see like a lot of of good detail but it's a very distinct difference from that and looking at roman sculptures yeah i mean looking at a lot of artwork ancient paintings and stuff like that looking at that versus looking at renaissance paintings it's it's night and day the level of skill involved with that mm-hmm. so you know as you as you've got that time to be able to spend on what would be previously considered more frivolous pursuits then you're able to develop and hone those skills and so i wonder if part of that has to do with the reason why we're those names of colors came along later on is because as you had more time to spend looking at things to 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 paint to to write to describe those different elements that you you needed a different word you wanted a different word and so going back talking about the different shades so people would look at these different colors and stuff of red and they'd say well that's red Mm -hmm. and you'd show them two different shades of red or two different I, i don't know my wife calls them tints or something i don't know but she knows more about it than I do. She's the but, artist. <laughs> that is true. But so like you could show them a crimson and then show them a scarlet. And like they would say, yeah, those are the same color. <clears throat> then if you teach them the word scarlet, the word crimson, mm-hmm. and you show them and associate those colors with those words, they're going to differentiate them a whole lot more. Not just see them as like, hey, these are, those are both red. Mm-hmm. They'll, oh, that's, that is a distinct kind of red. This is a distinct kind of red. And then they're actually going to start seeing more individual shades of red or tints or whatever the word is. That's kind of like the, you know, if the bear poops in the woods, do you hear of it, right? Is, is there any sound if the bear poops in the woods versus if you're there and witnessing what's happening? And what I mean by that is, is that as we evolved as human beings in, in social abilities, which mostly is communication. As we develop the communication, I think in a lot of ways it opened our minds to a lot more reality in the sense that like, oh, I I used to, like we we didn't have a word for red, we didn't have a word for blue and purple and all these different things. And a lot of that, because it wasn't being used, right? It wasn't, these weren't um, colors you could create. They either happened in nature or you didn't see them. But on top of that, people didn't pay, that wasn't the focus. And all of a sudden, you're starting to give words to describe the difference between two things that are super similar. And you're like, why? It's it's the same thing. And then as you start to bring that into the culture, then you train that, you teach that to young pliable minds, they take that to the next step. Oh, well, there's, there's additional colors within this palette, this color palette, right? And it's just that the whole story of color to me just brings so true of so many different aspects of culture and how it developed through communication. Cause it's the one thing that differentiates us from every other animal is the quality of communication, our ability well, to. And, and that's one thing that, so you know about my accident. I've talked about my accident on, on the podcast before. Uh, just a quick recap was that I had a traumatic brain injury and while during my time in the service, and it's actually what ended my time in the service. Um, but one of the side effects of that was aphasia. And aphasia is, there are three different kinds of aphasia. The one that I have is makes it difficult for me to communicate what I'm thinking. So I lose words. Like I will have times where my mind goes completely blank and I can't think of a word. And you've been kind enough to edit around some of those circumstances <laughs> when we recorded. <laughs> uh, but I'll have other times where where words will be substituted. Right. And so I'm actually going to speech therapy now Good. to try to, to to work with that and to fix it. But it's something that, um, you know, it's really it. it of course, I talk about it and it starts happening. You draw it out, <laughs> but yeah. Well, no. What what happens is that you it causes me to look at words. And, and understand them differently or, or think about them differently. And there was some of it that I had a little bit of more of an understanding uh, back in the day. But one of the, the things that they try to teach you in the speech therapy is, okay, so you're having a hard time with a word. Try to, try to think of a simile for that word. 
Well, what frustrates me as my exacting nature is that similes aren't always similes. Right. So a lot of you're going for a specific result. Right. One specific. There are nuances. Mm -hmm. So like if, if, so for example, they will teach you in school that big and tall are similes. Which is hilarious because we're big and tall. Yeah, we are big and tall. Right. Right. <laughs> but, you know, there are, there are There's members distinctions of, that we can see well, yeah, within that. Like your cousin mm -hmm. is just tall. Right. Not big by any stretch of the imagination. Right. I mean, that woman probably barely weighs over 100 pounds. <laughs> right. And she's almost six foot, mm -hmm. if not more. Mm -hmm. So that's that's tall. That's not big. Right. And then you can look at my dad. My dad is 5'8". That's not tall. No. Like, not not unless you're over in, in Asia is that tall. But he's a big guy. And let me throw the wrench in the works. When you see a seven plus footer walk by, what do you say? Oh, my gosh, he's big. <laughs> right? So Well, you could, but if, it, <clears throat> if it's Yao Ming... I'm just right. going to think he's tall. But if I see Shaq, oh, he's big. And that's the thing is I'm saying from somebody who's not, who doesn't have the exacting nature that you do. I, when I see somebody like that, who's huge walking by, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they're big. And it's not, it, it, but if I were trying to be accurate and describe them to you, I'd be like, oh yeah, no, they're like really tall. This is, you know, that kind of thing. But you are so exacting about it that it frustrates you and it gets you stuck. It does. It <laughs> does. And that's actually one of the hiccups that my speech therapist has talked to me about is that that's going to be difficult for you. And I'm like, yeah, but I still want to be there. And she goes, no, I completely understand. Mm -hmm. um, but no, it was, uh, you know, I, I just think about there are, there are a whole lot more circumstances, a whole lot more examples of, of where the nuances between words can, can give a very different impression. Yes. And so similes aren't always similes, <laughs> but I mean, that, you're going to make her rethink her whole practice. Well, but that's again, that's a thing that when you're just trying to communicate basics, mm -hmm. when you've got hard manual labor to do, like you are farming, you are building aqueducts, you're doing that kind of stuff. You don't have time to get the level of education to learn about nuances of language. This is like the argument. You don't, you don't have, you don't have the resources mm -hmm. to give somebody the level of education to, to learn about nuances of language or to have the communication of nuance of language between two people. So it's something that as we, our society develops, as our cultures are able to thrive and we're able to no longer have those basic needs worried about, then yeah, we can get into more things of learning about nuances of language, learning how to communicate better and to have, how to be better understood. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things around that remind me of discussions I've had recently about education. And the reason is because we have this generalist mindset of we've got to teach kids very, we have to teach a lot about a lot of different things where the standard is for, you know, they're teaching finance in sixth grade now. Like that's, that's, that's new. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Now, I personally think it's cool that we're teaching finance at a young age. No, I think that's exceptionally important. Right. But I'm just saying, like, I didn't have a good finance class in high school. <laughs> so I actually did learn to balance a checkbook in high school. Right. So I learned from my parents. You know what? I probably should have learned from my parents, but this is before I had a job. So there my, my parents taught me, you know, they taught me a lot more about finance and doing taxes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Once I was collecting a paycheck, but you know, I do think that that's important because there are kids that are getting, getting jobs, you know, young and yeah. Well, there's I, entrepreneurs too. There's a lot of people starting small businesses for themselves, 14, 15, 16 years old. Gosh, I wish I would have been that future minded. Me too. I mean, there's a lot of them that, a lot of stuff they're doing is just brand wise. You know, they're, they're like, Oh, I understand that if I put out this type of product, my friends are going to want it, that kind of thing. A little customization or they latch onto a social influencer, right? And then help them come up with product lines and stuff. So a lot of it's marketing, a lot of it's stuff like that. So I think it was Mark Cuban, maybe, who uh, he was talking about how when he was a kid, he would buy toothpicks and he would buy cinnamon oil and he would soak the toothpicks in cinnamon oil <laughs> and then he genius. would sell it to kids at school. Yeah. Dude, as a, as a, as a kid, I would have done the exact same thing. Like I would have bought it. 
I absolutely would have bought that. Oh, I wouldn't have because I hated day. I hated cinnamon oil. Okay, but <laughs> now see, I like ground cinnamon, but it's the oil that mm. that bothers me. Too uh, concentrated or something. But. I don't know what it is. It just I I never liked it. Now my dad loves cinnamon popcorn. Mm-hmm. So and you know, uh, I I know people who who love like big red or red hots, hot tamales, things mm-hmm. of like that nature that, you know, it's that cinnamon oil in there. Right. And nope, never my thing. <laughs> well, so the tangent I was going on about the education was more specifically that we set a super high standard. And I heard this really, this, it was a TikTok video. And so I feel really stupid for even saying that, but I got to give credit where credit's due. But the, it was essentially, what is something that you never learned in high school or that your teachers never talked about that may have been important and may have changed the course of your life? And this guy said, well, what they don't tell you is your GPA doesn't mean anything the day you turn 23 years old because of how colleges are structured. They look at finances only at that point. What do you qualify for financially? Do you qualify for student aid? Do you qualify for grants? Do you qualify for you know some sort of scholarship? Well, when I went back, so I I had to take the ACT right. in order to get into school. Right. Uh, but when I went back to school, I never took the ACT again. Right. Like and I was, it's a one and done type thing. Yeah. And it, once you have like an ACT or, you know, one of the LSATs or whatever, you're, you're set like that's done. And they no longer look at your high school scores. And that's why a lot of people go into like, you know, uh, well, but no, this is in my thirties and like right. and the eight, your ACT scores expire. After well, they time. expire, but you've but, already received entrance into a college or you've already established that that is your education level. And they, they stopped caring at that point. But his point was, it's irrelevant what you learned in high school when it comes to college. They're very different things. If you want to continue down a path of one of the STEM fields, that's great. There's a great transition between high school directly into college and that sort of thing. You need that higher education to get to the point where you're functional in the uh, ever developing world of, of STEM. But if you're, I think this is where I would have fallen. If somebody would have told me graduate high school, but use those years between being 18 years old, graduating high school and 23 to go out and get some real life experience, work some blue collar jobs, find out what you like, and what you don't like, see what doors are opened, travel. This is a big thing that happens in Europe. They have kind of a two year period right after high school where, you know, typically kids are transitioning into college and it's, it's very normal for, for, you know, over in the UK for someone to go to college for a semester or two. And then say, you know what, I'm going to go on a little hiatus. I'm going to travel the world. And they literally just travel all over Europe, Eastern, Western Europe. They, they hit, you know, anywhere a they can travel. Year. Yeah. Well, it's not just a gap year. It's, well, it's sometimes I understand, it's but that's what years, it's traditionally was called was a right? gap year. Yeah. And so what we, what we typically do is we really push this idea that you got to go straight to college. And if you let some people go out there and get some vocational skill sets while they're in high school and let them start a career, they may latch on and say, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. I'm happy. Or, but if they understand that their high school grades don't matter, that's kind of where I was at because I didn't have the greatest high school grades, but I was worried like, um, I, like I wasn't stupid, but I didn't do, I didn't focus in high school. No, so I was I, like, I was smart and I didn't apply <laughs> myself in high school. Yeah. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to, I was like, oh, I got to go, I got to do something. So I went and got my fire science, you know, working on my fire science degree, got my academy out of the way, all my certs and stuff. And I wanted to become a firefighter, but I kind of stopped the whole college thing. Cause I was like, this is all I want. Right. I want to be a blue collar guy. But then I, I started worrying like, oh man, I got to go do all this and that if I want to go to university. And it just became a hill too far to cross. But the advice that he was giving was let them know that that's okay. Let them know that having that transition period where you're trying to figure out what you like in life, it may be, let's go back to college so I can get a degree and pursue the, the field that I really want. But getting that experience, there's a lot of kids that don't fit into the structure of continuing education past high school. And, and I would even argue there's some that like midway through. So sophomore year, junior year of high school, they're kind of done. They know what they want to do with their lives. And, and hey, we're all different. There's some people that legitimately want to grab a pack of cigarettes on the way to work, go work in the dirt all day, come home, take a shower, have a beer, sit down. And that literally is all they want to do the rest of their life. They don't want to change that. And a lot of them know that by, you know, that middle of high school, you know, age range. And they want to go out there and make money. So why not let them? Why not let them go that direction? So I thought it was very useful advice, but it's because we've, I didn't think it was that much. I was like, I'm a pretty smart guy. I know what my kids are learning in school. I'm able to sit down with them and like help them with their work. You know, I get it. But I also see 
what they're piling on at these ages. And I'm like, wow, this really did step up. They really are expecting a lot more, a lot sooner. And I start to wonder if we're going to get to this information overload where you just can't expect, you know, our children to remain pliable enough to make it useful. It's one thing to get a ton of information. It's another to somehow distill it into a useful tool set. I get that. I mean, and now my school had a work study program. So, you know, I think it was, it might've just been senior year, but either junior and senior year or just senior year, you could take time out of your day to go and do work and your work would have to sign off on it. And it was counted as, as education credits, but you know, it, it was a work study program. Then you know, we had Votech and I talked before on this podcast about how I didn't really understand what Votech was and mm-hmm. nobody explained it to me. Right. And that was a resource that I, I missed out on because nobody took the time to explain it to me. Right. And I, you know, ours, you know, to go to Votech, you spent the first half of the day at school and then the second half of the day you went to Votech. And so I'm, there's a lot of that I would have really enjoyed learning. And I don't remember ever taking one of those aptitude tests of like, you know, what you're going to be good at. And that is a little strange, career. isn't it? Well, that, like when we transition to the high school, cause it is such a dramatic shift from middle school to high school. Why we don't have some form of entry level understanding, like where are you at? What are you interested in? And then what you, what's your aptitude well, towards a I mean, particular thing that we have? Because high schools nowadays have way more resources than we had when we were young. Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> they've improved well, these programs even beyond that. Like I, I had Votech where I went and I was, you know, graduating class of 132 people. There wasn't a lot, but had I known more about the options, I probably would have taken an option if I understood it. Well, and so my, my thought process there. So I, I've seen so many shows as a kid where they do that career aptitude test and they're teaching kids how to like they're they're letting kids test in order to find out what is going to be the best career path for them and you know so many episodes where they feel like it's the wrong career path or like you know results get mixed up and they're all confused about you know what they think they're supposed to do but the the point is that i never had anything like that Right. So I had to figure it out on my own and I changed careers a number of times. And now I'm at a point where I'm in my mid thirties and I'm still kind of thinking about career change. Going, <laughs> yeah. Going a different, going a different way. And it's not a, a huge jump from what I'm doing, but it's, it's interests that some of them that I knew that I had back then, but I didn't know how much it meant to me. And some of them that I, I just, I didn't know that I liked I like think, firearms. I didn't know that I was into guns until after I was already in the Navy. I was in my mid twenties when I became really interested in firearms, but I, I was, I was the same. I, it was my transition into law enforcement before I appreciated guns. Cause I grew up around them. You know, we had, we had guns on the farm. Um, my, all, all sides of my family had guns and it just was normal, but I didn't understand. I didn't get into it like I do as an adult. And, and I have a very different viewpoint of firearms than you do. I'm on the more, um, utilitarian side of it. You're more on like the artist side of it, right? Where you, Uh, you have an appreciation engineering side of it. It's art. When I put it in my hands, it's art. So, (laughs) but there's there's a difference is that somebody will look at something that's from a stylized standpoint. Oh no, style. No, it's, it's when the function is so good, the engineering of it, and the execution of the production is so good. That to me is what art is when it comes to firearms. It's like a whole different language of art, but it's okay. No, then I can agree with you on there. I don't, I don't agree with necessarily the verbiage, but <laughs> I, uh, I, I agree with the concept. So being able to look at, and I, being able to look at the evolution of firearms and see the changes and, and modifications that have been made over time. And I think that's one of the reasons why when I see stuff that goes backwards, it frustrates the crap out of me. Yeah. Like I, I hate paddle mag releases. So modern guns that come out with paddle mag releases, like the CZ Scorpion Mm -hmm. bugs the crap out of me. Now the MP5 actually has a button mag release. You can use either. So it's got a button. Oh, I didn't know how to button. I thought it just had that little paddle. And so it's got, it's got a paddle as well, but you can, it's, it's connected. So you can use either, but I, a lot of people like to use the the paddle because the MP5 mag doesn't really fall free when you push the it button. It doesn't. Yeah, you got to you got to you got to pull it out. So why not just stick it up there, grab the the paddle and pull it out? I don't like that. Right. I want to be able to push the button and be reaching for my other mag that I'm going to replace it with while the other while the first mag falls free and I can reload. For sure the AR got that right with the button press. Yes, absolutely. But I will say having shot that CZ recently, 
very impressed. The magazines release quickly. They're polymer. The inside of the chamber of the of the magwell is polymer, and so there's it's nice and slick. You get a clean drop. It's very similar action wise to what you get with you know a, an AR platform. But they still could have done it with a button mag release. I mean, button mag they releases were, were designed <laughs> in the early 1900s. So and that's where we get to have some fun because as we grow and learn and we want to get some better machinery and stuff, guess what we can put on the CZ Scorpion that I'm definitely going to get this year. No, I, I so <laughs> we can put a button release on it <laughs> but it's it's something well you'd have to engineer it though that's you'd what i'm saying to, you'd have to it's reconfigure it's going to happen yeah but and then there are things like you know i cannot stand the charging handle on the ar-15 fair well you don't why do you need to punch yourself in the face in order to charge right. the gun i and, and <laughs> the thing that that bothers me there is that if you look at the browning automatic rifle mm-hmm a weapon that was used in World War One, long before Eugene Stoner was was messing around with guns. Mm-hmm. That that charging handle would be perfect on the side of an AR-15. It really you would put that on that upper receiver in order to cycle the bolt. But it would you want left side or right side? So I would prefer to have left side. Okay. So I can keep my hand I like on the that. gun. Yeah, I like the idea of keeping my hand always on the controls. Yeah. So. That that's something that I feel like should have always been there. Now there have been modern manufacturers that have developed their own uppers that have that same style charging handle on there, a non-reciprocating side charging handle. In fact, Sig Sauer, their submission for the next generation squad weapon program, has that same kind of a side charging handle on there. It's right. based off of the Sig MCX platform, mm-hmm. but it has a non-reciprocating side charging handle. And I just got into an argument with some guys on Facebook. I. I I hate it when people run their mouth off about stuff that they don't really know about and they and don't know others. the level that they're ignorant. Right. They, yeah. They don't understand the level of ignorance that they have. And I know that there are probably people out there that listen to me and, and say the same thing about me. Right. I try okay to be knowledgeable <laughs> about the stuff that I know that, yep. that I talk about. And if they're, they're middle school things here, there, like if I'm talking about something wrong when it comes to, to alcohol, I understand that I'm, I'm growing in my knowledge there. Yeah. And the stuff that I'm conveying is the stuff that's been conveyed to me. Maybe my sources aren't the best, but when I was saying like Sig shit said like, Hey, you know, you can get the, the new, uh, this, the Sig spear is what it is, is what they call their, their, their rifle. And I said, the, you can, you can buy it now. We were releasing it. I'm like, that's awesome, but I would rather have a 5.56 version because that round. What are they putting it in? So it's, they released it now in the 6.8 by 51. Okay. That's the their submission. That No. That's not the SPC? No. Okay. So 6.8 by 51 is a round that they <clears> developed uh, for the next generation squad weapon program because one of the stipulations was you, you had to submit a weapon and you had to submit your own ammunition for that weapon. And the only... Uh, stipulation on that ammunition was that it be in a six eight caliber. Okay, didn't give a specific six eight caliber. Right, so they just put it in want a casing, that bullet. They in want a six eight caliber. Yeah. So what they did was they developed a hybrid casing to where it's using a brass. Um, so part of the, the shell, the, the the main chamber part of the shell is brass. Okay, but the head of the shell is made out of steel. Are you talking about where the uh, primer? Yes, where the installed? primer goes. Okay. That's, so that's that's made out of steel. Okay. Now, what that is, is that's the weakest part of, of the shell because everything else is reinforced by the barrel. Mm-hmm. So what this allows is that- Is this going to use have, our standard American primers or is this going to use the steel casing primers you'd see over in Russia? No, I think it's using standard American primers. I don't, okay. know, well, I don't know what- I'm six. trying to remember what the name is. I know there's a technical name for the two different types of primers, but. But what they're able to do is rather than <clears> having <throat> the thick brass that you would need, the thick, heavy brass at the, the the base of that shell, you're able to have a much thinner piece of steel that is able to withstand much higher pressures. So okay. they're able to drive up that ammunition. They're using different powders in order to make it much hotter, getting much higher pressures in that chamber to, to fire the round. But at the same time, because they're using less material, it actually reduces the weight based off of what a standard 308 would weigh. Okay, nice. So, um, the but that's the round that they're using, and that's mm-hmm. the round that this gun is coming out in. Well, one I, I talked about how that's got the non-reciprocating side charging handle. Well, 
they based the rest of it around the Sig MCX design. It's just a scaled up version of the Sig MCX put into 308, but it's got that non-reciprocating side charging handle. Uh, there's a little bit of difference in, in a few other things, some, some minor stuff, but essentially you look at the two guns, it, it's like a scaled up version. Okay. Um, but I put on there like, yeah, if when you guys come out with a five, five, six version, I, I want it, but not, not so much this, um, and five, five, six cheaper ammo. Cause I think somebody posted something about that. The ammo that they're selling for it was like 80 bucks for a box of 20. I wouldn't be surprised if you think about obnoxious. if you're, if you're, if what you're saying is accurate, I have the metallurgy on trying to get steel and brass to work together on a casing in a high pressure environment. That's very interesting. I, I'm there. That cannot be a cheap process yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll show you some of the cutaways. It's basically <clears throat> just making kind of some, some grooves that they fit together. But anyway, yeah. So I'm like, this, I, this reminds me of Throckmore Morton. You know, I Throckmore no Morton is what you're talking about now. So the space shuttle disasters that we've had, there was a company called Throckmore Morton. They were the ones that built the uh, solid rocket boosters that attached to either side of the big orange, you know, tank, gotcha. the Hydrox tank that, you know, yeah. shot it off. <clears throat> there were, because the rocket booster was so big, they couldn't make it as a single unit. When you're making a solid rocket booster, you're taking basically almost a pasty material and you're lining a object with it in layers and building that up so that it burns off correctly and you have a chamber down the center of it. And so they could not build it as a single unit because the machine, you don't have a machine that can go paint it, you know, 95 feet away on the inside and, and keep coming back. It was just easier if they built it in sections that were, you know, reasonable. Yeah. Plus transportation, being able to get it from manufacturing location to, you know, the Cape, you've got to be able to, you know, take this stuff across the highways. So <clears throat> there's a solution for the joints was to use a double o-ring gasket in order to seal it off because as that's burning through the center of the solid rocket booster there's gas pressures near the the well there's a bell nozzle at the bottom and that's attached the same way that these sections are attached and the problem they had they weren't <clears throat> paying attention to temperatures and conditions uh and so when the spaceship was it columbia was the one in 84 that blew up Challenger. Uh, Challenger. Thank you. Get them mixed up sometimes. They they were both disasters. But um, what had happened was overnight they'd had a freeze. And that freeze caused a freeze and then a thaw of those seals. And because they were trying to, in my mind, when you were talking about the steel casing and the brass, that was the first thing I thought of was like, they literally probably have some sort of grooving to keep those casings together because the pressures will expand the shell outwards. And that would cause even more of a seal if you have the proper grooving in place, because that's the same thing Throckmore Morton did. Yeah. Um, the problem was, is because of the freezing and then the rapid thaw <laughs> through the ignition, it it broke down that seal rapidly and there they knew that it happened they even had papers on the degradation of the seals after they would those sbrs would land and they'd pull them back and do a study and they knew that this was an issue it was a known like they in when they studied it and, and came out with a, a you know a white paper on it and said here's the problems we had it was because they had a built-in we know we have a failure point and here's how we're going to fix it not by re-engineering so the failure point doesn't occur but we're, let's just throw another redundancy at it and that's where you know the, you get the sbrs blowing up and causing the issue um but that because of the outward pressures of that vessel and because of the heat and the temperature and the degradation of that the hot gases started escaping through those those little areas yeah and then kablooey right yeah. you, you you have a, a, a rapid unscheduled departure from flight um and I, and so like, it's just funny. It was a tangent, but on the same token, it was like, I don't know how they're going to make brass and, and steel work together and not have, um, those types of issues. Well, I know that most of it's because it's in the chamber, well, right? Somebody <laughs> came out with the idea of it a long time ago. Cause I remember seeing, I remember seeing something about it on, uh, on some web show or YouTube, whatever, but I, something about having that, that steel head to the brass casing. And I, I never saw anything about it again until Sig released this. It makes me wonder if they bought up the patent or something and they were could have and just told them to shut up working yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, so, so yeah, cheaper you ammunition an with this guy because his so, perspective right. of 
that particular firearm and well, five five six. Well, no. So cheap cheaper ammunition. Be able to use the same mags that I have. So I wanted five five six version that had the non reciprocating side charging handle. Well, I had three guys on there get on and say it already exists or you mean just an mcx or another guy that had a meme of just like don draper shaking his head i'm like yeah you guys are making fun of me but the may there is no mcx model besides the spear this gun that has a non-reciprocating side charging handle that's the thing that i want right so Stop popping off at the mouth and <laughs> this insulting is people about completely. stuff and making yourself look like an idiot. Yeah. yeah. But, so you're, you're, um, what you were wanting was, I guess, hidden in the details because they weren't, it maybe didn't specify that it was this specifically the side charging handle that you were looking for. Well, I didn't specify that, but the, right. the and maybe it's just because of what, what's important to me. Right. So me looking at this and saying, okay, well, so here's the original version. It's of the got gun. all the MCX good stuff. And then they added the icing on top. Right. <laughs> uh, but then they put it in a caliber that's too expensive and <laughs> like, and I don't have it. So yeah. like, I want to take that same wonderful feature and put it on this version right. that I have the, the ammunition for. I have the magazines for, and the ammunition is nowhere near as expensive. Yeah. So yet. But, but anyway, you know, the, as production ramps up, I'm sure they'll get the cost down. But I, I like, it, I don't know. I With don't know the inflation yeah. stuff. You've got not only Where brass increased, is out right now, increased operating costs, increased material costs, you know, increased tra- transportation costs. I mean, all, all prices of everything is going up right now for sure. And there are there are certain industries that are kind of able to pad it a little bit, and they're able to eat some of the costs, and they're being able to try to keep their prices pretty consistent. But I mean. There were, there were some body armor companies that I noticed put out stuff <clears throat> earlier, uh, the, like towards the end of the year, saying, hey, January 1st, prices are going up. Right. Sorry, we tried to keep it as, as long as we could, but everybody uh, is affected by the Biden economy. So prices are, are going to have to go up. Right. Well, um, let's take a break for a little bit. I want to go over a few things and then we're going to come back because there's a whole laundry list of things when it comes to politics and history that I kind of wanted to get into. And this is a really good transition point for us. Awesome. So stand by, everybody. (laughs) 